0: Uh, Is it just me or was it uh, just a beautiful week weather-wise? Have we been waiting for nice weather like this for a while? No? No, we like it as hot as it's been? No, it was a little cooler this week, right? Well, that's what I liked about it. If you didn't like it, that's fine. I liked it. So my story begins uh, about 11 years ago. I'm just going to start off with a little story it was when I was um in the hospital when my daughter was born about 11 years ago in 2 days and um I read is turning 11 this week and um shortly before that it was my birthday and my parents got me a gift that year it was a membership to ancestry.com has anyone ever been on ancestry.com no just a little bit just a little Oh, Jen's been on it a lot. Did you find anything you weren't expecting? Yes? John, how about you? Not enough. (laughs) Not enough to keep paying the money to, uh, that's exactly right. Ancestry.com, it's a great website. You can go, there's public records on there. And what you find out is who your family is. You can go back generations if people kept good records. And it was good. All my life, I just said to myself, well, I'm three quarters Irish and I'm a quarter Italian. And case closed. No problem. Well, I happened to find out a couple of things that I didn't quite know at the time. For example, I found out that I am the 10th great-grandson of the colonial governor of Connecticut, a man by the name of John Webster. And yes, our family also wrote a dictionary in the process, Webster's Dictionary. You know, something kind of cool, right? Digging a little bit further, I found out that my ninth great-grandfather was one of the founders of Rhode Island, a man by the name of Thomas Angel, who was stirring up trouble in the church with Roger Williams. And they banished them, and they went and founded their own colony of Rhode Island and Providence plantations. As they, We've been, we've been stirring up trouble in the church for a while now, haven't we? <laughs> um, I also found out um, I have a seventh great-grandfather, Major Abraham Harding, uh, who served in the American Revolution. Something kind of neat. And then I found out that I have an ancestor by the name of Mercy Bibber who lived in Salem, Massachusetts. And she wasn't on the good side. She was one of the accusers. You know, it's funny because you, you find out really awesome people and then you might find someone in there that, Ugh, I don't know if I want to tell many people about that one. Now, this is all my dad's side. My mom's side, everyone's squeaky clan, just so you know. <laughs> my mom's side, they're all Irish. They just came from Ireland. They were probably created on Ireland and then decided to come to America at some point. But it really got me thinking, you know, how often when we do perform certain actions in this world, do we think about the future? Do we think generations down how it's going to affect things? Are our actions today going to cause something 10 generations down the road where people remember us for something, whether it's good or bad? You know, it's really interesting, all of these things, because I was on Ancestry.com maybe for a year, and this this part is my mom's side. There was one night I was doing some research, and I was looking at pictures of my great-great-great-grandparents. And I I left a comment on one of the pictures, and one person said, well, these are my great-great-great-grandparents. I said, well, they're also my great-great-great-grandparents. And I happened to start a conversation with my fifth cousin, this person who I'd never met, still have never met in my entire life. And uh, as it turned out, we realized we went to the same college uh, 30 years apart. We lived in the exact same dorm 30 years apart. We were both uh, uh, RAs. Uh, There's a chance that There's a one in three chance we lived in the same room in college, 30 years apart, because there's only three floors in there. But it's interesting, she and I, we would never have anything in common if we didn't have some ancestors in common, don't you think? People who thought about the future, and I think about my ancestors, and when they came over here, they weren't necessarily thinking about themselves. What were they thinking about? The future. Today, I'm continuing my talk on Jezebel and Ahab and how do we defeat Jezebel and Ahab when they come into our lives. You know, the first week we talked about Elijah, who was witnessing perhaps one of the greatest miracles of the entire Old Testament when the lightning came down on the altar and the fire. And then the next week we focused on his fear. When Jezebel said that she wanted to pursue and murder him. And finally, last week, we talked about the importance of Elijah finding a friend along the way when he met his friend Elisha. And Elisha, he had many adventures through the years, some of which we've already uh, talked about. But today, I feel the need to back up just a little bit. And I wanna talk about another character in the story, someone very, Important. Uh, Someone so important, he actually wrote another book of the Bible. Uh, Someone who loved God very much and he didn't try to run away when God told him to do something. So so we already know it's not Jonah, right? Right, okay. Someone who we know almost nothing about. We don't know who his wife was, so we know it's not Hosea. Uh, We don't know his previous occupation, like Amos, who was a farmer. His book, It's not very long, so we know it's not Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. In fact, this is going to narrow it down quite a bit, he wrote the shortest book of the Old Testament. The shortest book of the entire Old Testament. Uh, It isn't filled with imagery like Zechariah, and it's not written in prose like Malachi. It's straight-up poetry, the way that he writes. It's not Micah, Andrea. I'm going to answer in a second. (laughs) And his book isn't even written to the Israelites. Not at all. Not to God's people. It's written to a foreign nation. Uh, Jonah is another book that's fully devoted to a foreign nation. But this one, just like Jonah, really short, written to a foreign nation, to a certain group of people who were not considering the future. How about that? It's not Daniel. It's not Daniel. Any, Any guesses at Obadiah? What were you going to say? Haggai, no, no, Haggai's a very good guest. That's only two chapters. Obadiah is only one chapter and 21 verses long. The shortest verse of the entire Old Testament. And if I were to really want to quiz you guys today, I would ask you, what does Obadiah mean? That's okay. It is something important, Dan, yes, yes. I, I, I I had to stump you guys somehow. It means servant of God. Obadiah, the servant of God. Remember how last week we talked about Abed Malek and how it means servant of the king? Well, Obadiah is a similar name, which means servant of God. And recently, a friend of mine, who I, I talked to very often, we went to high school together, he sent me an article about what everyone's least favorite book of the Bible is. And I'm sitting there thinking, Leviticus? I mean, was it? uh..." And it actually says in the title, everyone's least favorite book of the Bible, and it isn't Leviticus. And I thought, okay, okay. It's actually Obadiah. Obadiah consistently comes in as everyone's least favorite book of the Bible. Despite how short it is, despite how easy a read it is, it's close to the bottom of everyone's least favorite book of the Bible. And why is that? Well, it's not a happy book. It's not a happy book. It's not one of those, oh, well, God just wants to love you and he wants to you know, give you blessings and make millions of dollars. It's not one of those books. And it's also a little hard to apply to our own lives when we read this book, especially when we have little context. But when I started doing this series, I started doing research on all the, care, all the, the people that are involved and I realize that there's so much to it that we don't consider when we read these stories. And I've preached on Obadiah here before. It's been about three years, I think, but never in the context of Ahab and Jezebel. So join me once again in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. And this is just before that great miracle that Elijah witnesses. And we even read, we read about that three weeks ago, but today I want to read it from another perspective. Another prophet who was standing right there for it, and his name is Obadiah, the servant of the Lord. So 1 Kings 18, verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. So so naturally, we all might have a couple of questions at this point. Obadiah, servant of the Lord, is the palace administrator for King Ahab, the worst king in history, while his wife is literally putting to death some of Obadiah's best friends. The guys who share Obadiah's God are God. And Obadiah serves this king. Why on earth would a prophet of God serve the most wicked king in the whole Bible? And honestly, I believe it's a simple answer. It's because it's where God wanted him. A difficult place, and not many people would understand. You know, during World War II, there were a group of men in the German military, officers who were opposed to Adolf Hitler. And they remained in the military, in the intelligence, because it gave them a platform for trying to remove Hitler and see real change. And their plans failed, unfortunately. Most of them were executed, including a man who you might have heard of by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Heads are nodding. The theologian, one of the greatest theologians that I've ever had the pleasure of I had to read one of his books just last week for one of the classes that I am taking. And it's, it's amazing. You feel wonderful, you feel convicted, you feel like you need to go save the entire world after you read Dietrich Bonhoeffer every time. And he was asked, why did you remain in Hitler's army? And he replied, the ultimate question for a responsible man to ask is not, how he is to extricate himself heroically from the affair, but how the coming generation is to live. He wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't even thinking about the present. He was thinking about the future and what difference he could make while in the German military under Adolf Hitler. Our responsibility to do what we can to help others seems to be more important to God than our desire to think of ourselves as morally pure. And I believe that this applies to our friend Obadiah. Verse 4. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. And so here it is. Obadiah is running the most, one of the most covert operations, probably of all time. He is hiding prophets in caves, and somehow he manages to feed them all. 100 prophets. If if Penny Roos was here, I'd ask how she provides food for so many people. 12 kids. And Dan, on top of that. (laughs) but he's providing for all 100 of these prophets. I can't imagine it's a very easy task, especially during a famine. So he has to be listening to God through all of these things. Obadiah is brave. He's organizing, organized and ever apparently hearing from God on this one. Because if he wasn't, there's no way he would be able to protect God's people. Verse 5. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover. Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in the other. And I can already hear Obadiah's mind. Yeah, let's go find some grass for the animals. And meanwhile, he's providing for a 100 people. He knows what he's doing. Verse 7, as Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master that Elijah is here. And that should seem easy enough, but it isn't. This request puts everyone's life at risk. And Obadiah is about to explain why. Verse 9, what have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and take, tell Ahab, and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He'll kill me. And I almost can't blame Obadiah for feeling this way, for being afraid. He's worked very hard this entire time for Elijah to just waltz in and risk everything. People's lives are at risk. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. It sounds like Elijah is listening to God a lot more than even Obadiah is. Obadiah is fearful, but he still musters up the courage to tell King Ahab to meet Elijah on the infamous Mount Carmel where the miracle is about to happen. And I have to say, there is no other mention of Obadiah in this story. His part is over from here. In fact, Obadiah is not even mentioned once again in the entire book of Kings. And I believe that Obadiah was suffering from a problem that he had just been spending too much time in a pagan kingdom, witnessing a pagan lifestyle, and on top of that spending a lot of time in his own head. And when Obadiah saw the miracle with the fire, the lightning, and the reign, he was reminded just how great our God is and he was brought back to reality. Obadiah was lacking in the boldness that God's people needed if they're going to change nations and minister to kings. And I'm not going to lie, especially because I'm standing right here, we don't know really anything else about Obadiah except that he wrote a, a, his, his book of the Bible. That short little tiny book, we don't know if he wrote it. <clears throat> Honey, can you get me my water, please? We don't know if he wrote his book before the event or after the event. But regardless, I believe it's so important that Obadiah recognized to look to the future in all things. <clears throat> Has anyone ever read Obadiah, by the way? If you've, if you've like read through the Bible, you've probably read Obadiah, right? It's an easy read. It's 21 verses long. You know, sometimes it's you're like in the home stretch of the Old Testament. You got a couple of books left, and you just kind of say, "Man, is are we in Matthew yet? What's going on here? All this judgment, all this prophecy. Oh, well, 21 verses. <laughs> you can do that in 10 minutes. Great. And you don't absorb a thing. You're laughing because you've done it, because I know I have. <clears throat> but the more you analyze this book, the more you really get out of it. Um, where was I? Okay, like I said, it's not even written to the Israelites. It's written to their southern neighbors, the Edomites, all right? We're not going to turn there quite yet because I need to give some context for who these people actually are. Chances are a number of you already know who the Edomites are. It starts with a very familiar story in Genesis chapter 27. You can turn there. And Isaac, the son of Abraham, the father of many nations, he marries a beautiful woman by the name of Rebekah. And, of course, they get married, and uh, she is told by an angel of the Lord, the younger shall serve the older. All right. Probably all she needed to hear. So when Esau was born, first and Jacob was born second, she knew exactly how to play this, right? And as the boys grew up, Esau received the favor from his father. Uh, they would go out hunting together. They'd go on fishing trips together, do all the things that fathers and sons do, right? Dad, let's get in the truck and do something today and, and do all kinds of cool guy things that, that a father and son always do with one. And no, I don't think trucks existed back then, don't worry <clears throat> get him the camel, let's go, that's right. But Jacob was different. He was very different. He, he didn't spend all the time with his father the way Esau did with Jacob. Who did he spend all of his time with? His mother. His mother, Rebekah. She knew that Esau would serve Jacob. And he liked to spend a lot of his time cooking in the house. I liked to cook. I mean, I do, I do, but I don't know if I'm much like Jacob. But unfortunately, while all of this is going on, Esau was just full of bad decisions. He married uh, foreign women who did not share his parents' God. And the Bible even said that the number of headaches that this, these daughters-in-law that they had just, was just unbelievable to them. They made Isaac and Rebekah's lives miserable. And one day while Jacob is cooking some soup, Esau comes in from the hunt. You guys all know this story, right? And and Esau comes in and says to his brother Jacob, I will simply die if you don't give me some soup. And what does Jacob demand? I want your birthright. I want the, the right of a firstborn that you technically should be getting but dad is going to give it to me instead of you. It hardly seems like a fair trade, does it? I certainly don't think so. But what does Esau do? He goes for it. He said, you know, I think I'd rather have some lentil soup instead. I don't even like lentils. Do you guys? I don't think they even taste very good. But he, he, he agrees to this. What a fool. Maybe, maybe he said it sarcastically or something. I'm sure Jacob goes home after this and says to himself, I can't believe that worked. Now I get everything from dad. Esau didn't quite think of it that way. But Jacob held him to it. And what does that say about Esau? Someone willing to give up so much for so little is not someone who's thinking about the future. Is it? He's not thinking about his children. He's not thinking about the nations that are bound to come out of him. He's not thinking that way at all. But that's not nearly as bad as what happens next in the story, and it happens while Isaac is pretty sure that he's about to die, and he says, "I want to bless my son Esau before I die." And by the way, I'm blind. And Rebecca says, "Okay, well, let's see what we can do here." It's a, again, it's a pretty familiar story. He says to Esau, I'll go out and hunt some game and bring it back. And then I will bless you. Rebekah just so happens to have some, some game handy and hands it to Jacob and puts Esau's clothes on Jacob and says, go to your father. Tell him you're Esau. Tell him that you want that blessing now. And Jacob said, but, but he'll know it's me. He'll put a curse on me. She said, if he does, the curse will go on me. You go do this. She's pretty sure of himself. And he goes in and Isaac says, well, you smell like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. You're probably Esau. Let's just do the blessing. Genesis 27, 27. And it says, so, when, so he went to, to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. That's quite a blessing for anyone to have. And it was stolen from Esau. And then Esau gets home with the wild game, ready, ready for his blessing. I'm going to get my blessing. Everything's going to be great. Lost the inheritance, but at least I'm going to be blessed. Oh, no, not at all. In verse 38, Esau has found out that his brother has stolen the blessing. Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing for my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. And this is the best his father could do. His father Isaac answered him, your dwelling place will be away from the earth's richness and from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword. You will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And Esau is mad. The best blessing he can possibly get is to serve his brother who just stole his blessing. Esau has had better days. Hasn't he? And Esau says he's going to kill his brother. He's cursing his brother, which ironically, uh, his father just said, anyone who curses you will be cursed. And Jacob finally makes the decision to flee and go be with his mother's family. And through it all, Jacob has 12 sons starting his family, a big family that's happening and Esau. Has about 13 sons over time. And they both become great nations producing kings. Genesis, it even has an entire chapter dedicated to the kings of Esau's kingdom. And Esau's kingdom is called Edom. And of course, we know the story when the brothers later meet, many years later, they part company as friends. Esau even says to his brother, you know, I'm not going to kill you. It's fine. It was years ago. But it's amazing to me that his best blessing would have come had he served his brother, which was something he still wasn't willing to do. Was Esau thinking about the future? Never. Never. And through time, Through the next several hundred years of biblical history, the Israelites and the Edomites come in contact with one another multiple times. Sometimes good, lukewarm at best. Sometimes they're out and out at war with one another. When Moses is bringing the Israelites through, they say to the Edomites, Hey, you're our brothers. Can we come through? Edomites say, You come through. We're going to slaughter you. Not happening. David goes to war with them several times, but at the same time, David actually has a couple of these guys in his army. The Edomites even joined the Israelites on several occasions. But over time, a very curious thing starts happening. Whenever a kingdom invades Israel from the north, remember, the Edomites are from the south. What do they do? They take full advantage. The army has just mobilized north, So the Edomites are going to attack from the south, the vulnerable south. We're going to pillage, we're going to rob, we're going to burn. Because it's our little brother. He happens to be the biggest kid on the block. But we're going to take full advantage of this. Are they thinking about the future? I don't think so. And I don't think they were really thinking about the past either because they knew that blessing. Turn with me to Obadiah. And maybe I have to give you a minute to find it, because if you flip the Bible too fast, you're going to miss it. All 21 verses of it. And like I said, we don't know much about Obadiah other than this book and that story in First Kings. But Obadiah has some very bad news for the Edomites and the way that they have treated their brother Israel. It starts off the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your homes on the heights You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? See, the Edomites are puffed up full of pride. And that reference to being brought down to the ground, they they were living in the mountains at the time, saying no one could possibly take us over while we're living in these mountains. We have a natural barrier. Verse 4, though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? And it sounds a little harsh for the things that God is saying about Esau. But considering the things that Edom has done to Israel, considering the blessing that Isaac gave both of his boys, this only fits into the story all the better. And if you think that's terrible, skip ahead to verse 18. Where it says Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble <clears throat> and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. Sealed. The Lord has spoken. Now I ask a practical question. Did the Edomites listen to Obadiah and get on their knees and repent? They sure didn't. You know, over time, the Edomites suffered a very similar fate as Israel and Judah. <clears throat> when the Babylonians came through, they pushed the Edomites a little further west. And these Edomites became known as the Idumeans. Very similar. Very similar. Same people. Over the next hundred, couple hundred years, you know, some of them got to be quite successful in terms of business and things like that. One of them became so rich, he literally built a mountain in the land that we call Israel today. You can still visit it to this day. And Julius Caesar, true story, was was coming through. You're not going to read about this in the Bible. This is historical fact. Julius Caesar was coming through, and this Edom Edomian said to him, what is it going to take for me to purchase the title the king of the Jews. And Julius Caesar named his price. And this man bought the title. Very interesting biblical figure who went ahead and did this and declared himself to be the king of the Jews. And in time around the year 3 BC, some wise men were coming from the east, probably from Babylon, and said, We're here for the king of the Jews. And they said, oh yeah, we've got this king of the Jews. His name is Herod. He actually bought the title. You can go visit him now. Herod the Idumean is the man who bought that title. And the wise men went over to Herod and said, yeah, you're not quite the guy we're looking for. We're looking for someone a little shorter. Herod, of course, responds to that negatively, putting to death all the babies under the age of two in the city of Bethlehem. By the way, you can still visit that mountain that he had built. That is how rich he was. He was no fool. He was no slouch. You can look at it. It's called the Herodium, if you want to Google it when you get home. And, of course, Herod later dies after Jesus and Mary and Joseph escape. They come back home. And Herod had a son who also took over. His name was Herod. Of course, we know him as Herod Antipas. <clears throat> and this is the guy who, when John the Baptist was causing problems, threw John the Baptist in jail. And his own stepdaughter, he said to her, I'd like you for you to dance with, for, for me, not with me, for me. Name your price. I'll give you half my kingdom. And we're not talking about lentil soup this time, are we? Or a birthright. But we're still talking about someone who's giving away so much for so little. You'd think that you'd learn something over time the way that his ancestor Edom did. And of course, she named her price. And John the Baptist was the one who paid the price course, in time, this Herod would happen to meet Jesus himself. Had no interest in him, which said to him, why don't you do me a trick? And I'll see to it that you're not crucified. You notice Jesus never says one word to Herod Antipas while he's standing before him. It's because Herod had no authority over Jesus whatsoever, going all the way back to that blessing. Jesus, the rightful king of the Jews, the descendant of Jacob, had nothing to say to the imposter, the descendant of Esau. And of course, Jesus is later crucified that day. But he's not the last Herod. There's another Herod in the book of Acts. You can turn with me there, Acts 12. As the church is really getting in motion here, We see a number of people coming to Christ. Wonderful things happening. And in Acts 12, chapter 18, Herod plays another part in here. This is the grandson of Herod, the son of Herod Antipas. And it says, In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him, and did not find him, he cross examined his guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Glasses, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. And here it is. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. You know, there's not many deaths in the Bible that I envy. This is probably number two or three. Number one's crucifixion. This is probably number two or three here. And this Herod had one son who died childless the last Edomite, the last Idumean, the last descendant of Esau. When the prophecy of Obadiah came about, and he said, There will be no survivors from Esau, the Lord has spoken, it took 901 years for that prophecy to be fulfilled. And he was speaking from the past of about 900 years. It's one of the shortest books of the Old Testament. It covers probably one of the biggest amounts of time that you can possibly fathom. And when God says something is going to happen, guess what happens? It happens. There will be no Edomites left on this earth. You know, I've often thought about this. What if Herod had repented? What if he had said, you know what, God, Um, I, I think you might have a point here. Maybe I'm not the king of the Jews. Maybe this baby here is the one. What does God do in a situation like that? Of course, he receives the repentance. And then he does a new thing. And then he would probably give Herod a new identity and say, well, I'll just say you're no longer an Edomite. But the fact of the matter is, there are no Edomites left on earth today. There's Egyptians, there's Jews, there's Ethiopians, there's people that the Bible talks all about. There's Greeks, but there are no Edomites. And I think this all comes about because Esau and Ahab had a very similar problem. They didn't think about the future. And I think when Obadiah was prophesying to the Edomites, and talking to Ahab, he realized they had a very similar problem. Generations from now, people just might remember what you have done. They just might. And it's going to have a very negative impact. But here's the good news. Even if Ahab is not thinking about the future, we're the people of God, aren't we? Do we think about the future? Yes. I believe we do. I believe that our actions speak to that. I believe that it's the reason we pray for our children. It's the reason we raise them up right. It's the reason that we vote the way we do. It's the reason we do so many things because we think about the future. And that's a biblical concept. You know, I know a lot of people today are worried about the future. Do you think people were worried in Ahab's day about the future? Yeah, I believe so. Do you think that people were worried in the days of Obadiah about the future? When they were seeing the things that were going on in the kingdom of Edom, do you think they were worried? I believe so. I think the people of Judah were worried. But I say it again we are the people of God. We pray for the future. Because whose hands are the future in? God's. You know, we had a rough week as a country. Not as rough as another country I'm thinking about, Afghanistan. Couldn't turn on the news without seeing it. Without seeing what was going on. What was happening with the women and the children and the people that were trying to flee, people literally chasing airplanes. And it's very hard to watch those sort of things happen. But the future is in God's hand. So what are we as a people to do? Well, we can start by praying. Have people been praying for Afghanistan in here? You know, just before I got up here, I was told today is considered a national day of prayer. For Afghanistan. And I think that we should fulfill that today. Because I tell you what, as bad as we think that it might be in Afghanistan right now, I think that the the Afghan revival can happen at some point. Don't you? I think the Middle Eastern revival will be a beautiful thing when all of those people who speak Arabic will be able to declare the name of Jesus without fear for their lives. I think we're going to run out of copies of the Bible that were written in Arabic, don't you? That's what I'm praying for. Because I have to tell you, I was talking to another friend of mine this week and he seemed to think that, well, we need to send more money over there. If that worked, this wouldn't happen when we see it. There's only one solution to the world's problems and it's a person and his name is Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we pray for the future. Yeah, thank you, John. And if you're fired up, I'm glad. Because I have to tell you, prayer is the first thing that we do. And there's other things we can do from here, right? We ask for God's guidance and what our role in this is. How we help these people who so desperately need it. So Heavenly Father, today we lift up Afghanistan, we lift up the Middle East. We lift up a place where it is illegal to say your name in reverence, to worship you, to say a prayer in your name. We declare it. We declare a mighty move of your Holy Spirit. God, we ask that every Muslim in power today that they have dreams, they have visions, they see the face of Jesus. They can see exactly what the future holds when they put their trust in Jesus. Whether it's comfortable or not, we know that it's the most appealing thing. It's the best news we can possibly give them. And God, we don't just speak this over Afghanistan. We speak it over Haiti. We speak it over all of the people over there that have experienced disaster in the past two weeks. Those who might be in the hospital today or those who might be seriously injured. God, I thank you that you meet them exactly where they are. And God, we pray for China. We pray for the people that might oppress the church over there. That there might be genuine conviction in their minds. God, we pray for North Korea. We pray for the leaders in North Korea, a country where they punish even grandchildren for the crimes of their grandparents, for proclaiming the name of Jesus. God, we thank you that you are not a God who forgets who your people are. You're someone who formed every last one of us in the womb all 7 billion of us on this earth and more. God, I lift up all of the countries of the earth and I lift up the United States. And I ask for just a new refreshing of your word that people will just desire to read it, desire to pray, desire to speak to your spirit, not for the present, but for the future that their children will know the name of the God, of of God and not just some superficial thing that their parents did but a genuine encounter with you the creator of the heavens and the earth and it's in the mighty name of Jesus that I pray and everyone said amen amen, amen.